Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to discuss technology that's literally out of this world. Yes, we're going to be taking a look at the hardware inside the James Webb Space Telescope. It's $10 billion. They got to have something good inside of that thing. Then we head to Camera Corner, where Wendy will continue the discussion around the Webb Space Telescope, schooling us on lenses, refractive versus reflective. So sit back, relax, and plug in, because Hardware Addict starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, our resident photographer extraordinaire, along with hardware enthusiast, and Michael, the software sage and hardware padawan. Let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this week. Michael, you let us down last episode. Hopefully this week you have something good for us. What do you got? I do. In fact, I have a couple of things, but I'm going to save a little bit for next week. Uh, but first of all, I want to talk about some monitor issues I was having, and I also ordered a replacement. Now, uh, previously, I talked about having a new monitor just like a month ago, and it was a maybe it was a little longer than that, but it was an ultra wide. And I realized that an ultra wide is not for everyone because I'm not really a fan of the experience of an ultra wide. You're going to make Brandon from Pseudo Show so upset hearing this because he's such a fan of Ultra Wide. But here's the thing. I heard he didn't like the Matrix movie. So who cares what he thinks anyways? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Agreed. Okay. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So Ultra Wides are really cool. And I know a lot of people like them, but like I didn't really enjoy using the Ultra Wide. And I think it's because it was not ideal for the majority of what I'm using the computer for. Like, uh, it's awesome for video games. Like, it's such a cool experience to be immersed into the game that much. Or it's awesome for, like, uh, doing, uh, or just watching videos. You know, if you're just watching movies that are to the 21 by 9 or in that kind of ultra-wide ultra, ultra wide approach, it looks awesome. But then everything else I did not like. Like, just using the day-to-day, -day, doing my work, it was not the best experience having to, you know, make adjustments to all the windows manually every single time I wanted to do something specific. Well, let's get into that for a second. For somebody who's never used an ultra-wide, you've got all of this real estate, essentially taking the width of two monitors being together, sometimes three, depending on how big of an ultra-wide you get. Mm -hmm. And it seems like you could just use it like if you had two monitors up there. So why is it so different than just having two monitors side by side? Well, it's because with the the main difference for me anyway is that when you have two monitors in the side by side, one monitor is your main focus monitor, and it is centered to your workflow, centered to your desk. You know, you're looking at it directly, and then you have a secondary monitor that's on the side. And that could be in a vertical or a regular horizontal, whatever. And then you still you have the benefit of having those two different monitors. But if you have an ultra-wide, really nothing supports that structure. Like, you'd actually have to just look at the monitor in a positioning where you have it centered on the right side to your desk. So you are looking at one side of the monitor and 
having to switch back and forth to the other thing like you were with a diff- the other setup of two different monitors. Because if you're centering the monitor to your seat or the desk itself, you're just going to be looking at the middle of the two windows. So at least that's what my experience was. So I, would, I, I found myself looking to the left or the right most of the time rather than having my stuff centered. Because every, in order to center it, I'd have to like move the window to where I wanted it. Or I'd have to set up like a tiling window system or like how Windows has these fancy zones and whatnot to compensate for the, the ultra-wide value is cool and there are benefits to it, but productivity is not one of them in my opinion. So I decided to get a replacement monitor. And I ordered it, and it has arrived. It actually arrived an hour before the show, and I've already opened it. I already hooked it up, and I'm using it right now. So, uh, is there someone there to take your temperature? (laughs) Yeah, really. We talked about space coming up. I don't know if aliens abducted our Michael, and this is a replacement Michael or what, but you actually got new equipment, unboxed it the same day, and hooked it up the same day. And already using it, exactly. That's crazy. A, I don't know what's happened either. Apparently, I'm trying to get out of the Padawan category, maybe, and then trying to upgrade. <laughs> but it's so far, uh, I've only had it for about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. So I really wouldn't say I can give any like a review on this particular monitor. So next week, I'll go into more details about like what I got and my experience with it so far. Because the next episode, I'll have a little bit more time rather than, you know, 20 minutes. No, I think it's going to be awesome. We're going to deep dive into this because me and you actually spent a lot of time discussing the various ins and outs of different Mm -hmm. specs for monitors, things that I think a lot of people don't think about when they're buying a monitor. I also don't like ultra wides only because Brandon likes them and he didn't like the Matrix movie, but I also don't (laughs) like them. So it'll be interesting to see what your take is as you're kind of going into a completely different realm of monitor here. We went with a completely different direction than you normally go, and we'll discuss Mm -hmm. that in the next episode. But until then, Wendy, what have you been up to? I got a piece of hardware for Christmas. If you've been listening to DLN Extend, you already know, I already knew, I was getting a Raspberry Pi 4B for Christmas. My husband showed it to me, made sure it was quote unquote the right one, then stuck it in the closet and didn't let me touch it for like two and a half weeks. Finally got to touch it Christmas day. (laughs) (laughs) And he went all out when it came to the top model that he could get. So this is the one with eight gigs of RAM. He bought a kit that came with a 64 gigabyte SD card. It came with an aluminum passive cooling case. So same day I got pie hole with unbound running on this thing. My biggest concern is not necessarily the software that's running on it, but I don't really like the temperatures that it's currently running at. I have the administration panel for Piehole open right now, and we're hanging around 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, I don't know what these normally run. I put a whole bunch more block lists on it yesterday, so it's not just ad blocking. We have some trackers that are being blocked, some other things going on. So my domain block list is really quite large. We're over a million and a half on the block list total huge and it is working pretty constantly i've got a 65.6 current percentage of 
queries being blocked. So it's working pretty consistently, pretty hard as this is during the day. The kids are using computers, they're using their tablets. It's really being put to work. And I don't like it sitting at that 110 degree consistent temperature. So I've been doing some looking at cases that have some active cooling instead of just passive cooling. I've almost settled on one, but by the time we meet again, I will have a new case figured out and I can tell you all about the one that I've picked up instead. That's interesting. So when these first came out, specifically the version with eight gigabytes of RAM, a lot of people had the same complaint that you do about the heat that it generates. So I would say it's very much within the normal operating temperature, actually a little lower. They generally run, if you have a, a decent passive cooling on there, around 70 degrees Celsius, at least mine, in my experience, did when I was messing with different coolers as well. But because of that eight gigabytes of RAM on this, these things tend to run hotter. And so I've not noticed any issues with reliability using these devices for all of the various things that I have running on mine, but they definitely run way hotter than your standard Raspberry Pi that you're used to, like the two gig or four gig versions uh, that you may have played with in the past. So you may find without doing some active cooling on this, you're not going to get it much below that 70 degrees Celsius standpoint or, you know, 150 degrees Fahrenheit, 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Possibly. I'm really worried that where it is running Pi Hole like this isn't going to be shut down at all pretty much ever. And just having that consistent temperature over years is my biggest concern. So if I can at least drop it down a few degrees with some active cooling, I'm more comfortable with the longevity of it in general, especially where I don't have any quote-unquote backup DNS. I want everything coming through my pie hole and it would be a whole lot of fun one day of why isn't the internet working and then having to replace that. I guess I should have a backup. I have backups of so many things. In now the you just got a reason to buy a second one. I love it. I do. Actually, I already had a reason to buy a second one. So I guess that and I already had a reason to buy a third one. So I guess there would be a reason to buy a fourth one. Welcome to Raspberry Pi where you can never have enough <laughs> of these little devices here. They're unbelievable. I have four or five. I don't even know how many I have anymore. And I just keep finding reasons why I'll just pick up another one just to have around there. I don't know what kind of case you have, but the memory itself is producing a lot of the heat. And if you don't have any heat sinks or any heat dissipation pads on the memory itself, that may be a place where you can get uh, the temperatures down there by implementing something there. Yeah, and this case only has contact with the system on a chip. It doesn't have contact with the RAM itself. So that's one of the reasons why some of these other cases that I've been looking at where they do passive and active cooling at the same time, not just system on the chip, but also for the RAM might make for a better overall temperature of the board. Well, it's going to be exciting to get updates on that. I cannot wait till Wendy's like, you know what? I wasn't able to get the temperature I want, so now I'm water cooling it. Boom. <laughs> I'm not the only one with a small device, though. You got more gaming going on in your house, even though your son can't touch it. Hmm? Well, here's the decision that my wife and I made, right or wrong, mostly wrong, but we'll get into that in a minute, where I thought, you know, one of the problems was we got these new systems, the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X, and a lot of those are geared towards more adult games. 
And he got frustrated, as we talked about in the prior episode, with his games, and it was just kind of creating the wrong behavior. So I thought if we go Nintendo, go back to some more of the kid games, which I thought was a good idea at the time. Maybe I had a little too much jack because then I thought about my childhood and how mad I used to get at Mario, so maybe it's not a good decision. So anyways, the end result is we went with all of the Nintendo Switch equipment. One of the Nintendo Switches, my son and my daughter both got regular Nintendo Switches. I had to get myself the OLED version because I must have better equipment Naturally. than them. I'm older and I work for a living. So I got the OLED version. And you're version. probably, probably not going to throw it. Probably not going to throw probably. that version. Yeah. I don't know about that. He might get angry at Mario. <laughs> it's yeah, true. Know. You never know. Mario is very frustrating. Get the nostalgia rage going. So the interesting thing about the OLED version is this is their updated Nintendo Switch, which is a portable gaming device from Nintendo for those who are into the gaming world. So you can take this device anywhere. You can also dock it, and so you can play your games on a television. The screen has multi-touch capacitive touchscreen now, and it's a 7-inch screen versus the 6.2-inch on the regular Switch. It also uses the NVIDIA custom Tegra processor inside for the CPU and GPU, a pretty powerful device. I was very disappointed in the storage because the prior switches came with 32 gigabytes of internal storage, which is weak. And this new updated version only comes with 64. So I felt like Nintendo's pulling a little Apple there on us with the storage just being really cheap with it, except they at least have expandable storage. Unlike most Apple devices out there, you can actually expand the storage with cards up to two terabytes. Of course, that's an additional expense. On top of a device, when you look at the specs, that you're like, this thing isn't really worth $350 plus for the OLED version or $299 because it's like, what, six years later? And it's still selling for the retail price it did six years ago. Which brings me to my biggest problem with Nintendo. It has nothing to do with the hardware. The hardware is quite beautiful. And it feels good in the hand. The controls are decent. I wouldn't say it's Xbox quality contr gaming control level with the thumbsticks and things, but it's it's decent enough that you can play and experience it. But Nintendo itself is such a racket. I never remember Nintendo just being a money-grubbing racket company until playing with these Nintendo Switches and setting them up. Their software is so horrible as an operating system. For instance, setting up parental controls is a complete disaster that requires two different websites and an app on your phone. The two different websites all have different variations of what you can control in there. That's really messy. If you get a game, Nintendo pretty much sells every game, even their old ones from the old Marios and stuff are $59.99. Everything seems to be $59.99. And so when you're used to Steam or other things or even Xbox and PlayStation, where there's tons of sales. Now, Nintendo does have some sales, but it's on really old titles and stuff that's not really popular. You want to play something like Splatoon 2 that came out when the original Nintendo Switch came out six years ago? Well, it's $59.99. But here's the thing. On the Xbox, I could buy a game and on the Xbox Game Pass or on PlayStation, and I could share that with my son who may have had another PlayStation that he was playing on or the other Xbox that he was playing on. Not on Nintendo though. Oh no, you would have to buy three copies of that $59.99 game for all three of you to be able to play that game unless you wanna share one console or something like that. So it's just, it's one of those things where 
I feel like everywhere I turn, I'm just more money is having to be dumped into this decision of trying to get my kid into more family-friendly games. And it's costing me an arm and a leg on hardware that's kind of outdated. I mean, the OLED screen is really nice. It's definitely an upgrade from the original Switch, but isn't worth the price they're asking. And for software and an operating system that feels like it's 15 years old. So while wow. just right out of the box, if you were buying one console, it's a lot cheaper than some of the others. If you go with an Xbox or a Sony PlayStation, but they catch you when it comes to games. It's absolutely crazy when it comes to the cost of games. We have an Xbox One. We currently have the Play Pass. And I was kind of hemming and hawing about the price of the Play Pass. After what you just told me about the Switch, we're good. I'm happy with it. No problem. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I wanted to bring this up because if I could do it all over again, I would just change the games that we bought for the PlayStation and the Xbox and never bought Nintendo Switch environment. But I thought it would be more fun. It would be a change up from, you know, being on that PlayStation, which was, you know, causing frustration. The games weren't being fun anymore. They're obviously being frustrate frustrating to him. Maybe it was too competitive for his age. So I thought, well, Nintendo will bring some nice things in there. But I was very, very wrong there. And, well, three Nintendo Switches maybe on eBay soon. Let's just put it that way. Do you think that there's uh, ways to maybe do parental like controls or something on the, like, the Xbox or the PlayStation 5? Is there Are there options to do the same thing you're trying to do with the Nintendo games, but kind of lock it down to like only a certain account can play certain types of games? I could have done much better had I just taken the equipment that we had and done that. There are parental controls or ways you can lock it down. There are games that are more kid-friendly. Not as cool as the ones I think Nintendo has because they definitely play towards that younger audience. But they're, they're still there, and I could have utilized that the systems that PlayStation, the much superior software that PlayStation has and Xbox has over what Nintendo's doing Nintendo software is just the worst I, I've ever seen in a console. It's absolutely a terrible operating system that is implemented so poorly. I was just so frustrated. And every five seconds, I'm pulling out my credit card for something else on the Nintendo Switch. And while I felt like I had bought into the Apple ecosystem or something by the time I was done. Okay, so I totally understand your perspective. And I think eBay getting some more equipment possibility is a uh, not necessarily a bad idea. But before you do it, have you ever played Breath of the Wild? I have played Breath of the Wild when I got the original Nintendo Switch when it first came out. It is an absolute beautiful, amazing game. Okay. And when it comes to games, Nintendo knows how to make games. They know how to make fun games. It's the racket that they've made around it. That makes it so that even that fun experience that you know you could have playing a Mario Kart or playing Zelda or playing the new Metroid goes downhill because you're just constantly spending more and more and more money to try to keep up with this. I mean, $180 so all three of us can play a game. Why not just let us share that stuff locally? Now, there's a lot of people who have guides online that say they found some way of creating a separate account and that allows them to share a game, but you can't play it at the same time. And for me, I wanted it to be more of a family thing where we all sit around, play on our Switches, play the same game and that type of stuff. And it's just not working out for me. Yeah, that makes sense. I was just making sure you played that before you get rid of it. Now, at this point, now that you already played it, that's fine. You know, 
<laughs> now we can 76 it. We can exit out. Bye, Nintendo. I think it's 86. It. Thanks so much. Oh, yeah, 86. Thanks so much for telling us how much you hate the operating system on it and how much money it is because there has been a few popping up at the local pawn shop that I like to go to where I've gotten a lot of our nicer laptops used and I will just stop looking at them in general, just walk right past them. Well, the reason why people had to pawn them is because by the time they were done buying a game, they were broke. So it makes sense you're seeing them at a pawn shop. <laughs> you know what's a better deal than getting a Nintendo Switch at a pawn shop? Digital Ocean. That's a better deal. This episode of Hardware Addicts is sponsored by Digital Ocean. And now is the perfect time to dive into the Digital Ocean. Their app platform service helps you build modern cloud native apps for way less money. With the app platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever before using a simple, intuitive interface. You simply point the app platform to your GitHub or your GitLab repository, and you just let it do everything. All of the heavy lifting, whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, Docker, static sites, or container images, the app platform can handle all of this, and it can do all the heavy lifting for you. And by running the app platform on their own infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps your costs significantly lower than other products. Plus, built on top of DigitalOcean's Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. As a hardware addicts listener and a member of the dealing community, you can get started for free on the app platform. Actually, it's better than that because DigitalOcean is giving away $100 credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with a $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. We talk a lot about hardware and technology from the likes of AMD, Intel, ARM, Nintendo, but what about technology that's so advanced, it's literally out of this world? And that's why today... <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> you see what I did there? Yeah, out of this world. This, today, I wanted to talk about the hardware inside the James Webb Space Telescope that launched on Christmas. So for those who are not familiar, this is a $10 billion telescope. It wasn't meant to be $10 billion, but you know how those projects go. So it ended up costing around $10 billion to build this telescope. I want to run down first the purpose, and then we'll get into some of the hardware that's inside this, which I think is just fascinating. And a lot of this technology that's used in space ends up being used in consumer products down the road. So you never know where this type of technology will go. So it's definitely something interesting to study. So this telescope was designed to study our solar system, along with the most distant observable galaxies in the universe. And it is the most powerful telescope ever created by humans. So we now have something far more powerful than the Hubble telescope, which is kind of the competitor that a lot of people, well, I wouldn't say competitor, but it was the predecessor to this telescope coming out. And this is an infrared telescope that's meant to explore a wide range of science questions. They're going to help us understand the universe and potentially our place in it. So it's going to go back 13.5 billion years ago using ultraviolet and visible light emitted by the very first luminous objects that had any light coming from them at all. And it's designed to see that and have an unprecedented resolution and sensitivity to be able to pick all of that up. And we're expecting some amazing pictures and things coming from this. 
And to get an idea of what it takes to get those kind of pictures, to capture that type of light, Webb is so large that it had to be folded up like a piece of origami to fit inside the rocket that will launch it into space or launched it into space. And it's going to take two weeks just to unfold this thing. It's going to be absolutely amazing. We know the pictures that we've seen come from the Hubble telescope. And now we have this new device out there, which was a joint venture between three different countries, including the U.S., to come together to make this thing. And I am so excited to see the first data come through from this. I heard a little bit about it, but the I didn't hear about the the size of it requiring two weeks to unfold it. That's a that's a crazy uh, way of de- of describing this the enormity of it. But like the Hubble telescope has been a staple of providing awesome photos and fantastic wallpapers for your computer. Because that just it's it's like that's they true. just come with a new that's all so the time, true. right? Yeah. <laughs> For your computer, for your phone, we've had calendars that have pictures from the Hubble telescope. It has made a huge mark on science for years, and knowing how gorgeous some of those images were, the things it was able to capture, I just am too excited to see these first images coming from the Webb telescope. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk about, I know you're going to get into some of this technology in the camera corner as well, but the mirrors here. So they're not using Sony mirrorless. They're going with mirrors here to start mm-hmm. capturing this. So let's talk about the mirrors for That's a second. That's why I took two weeks. That's why I took two weeks because they didn't have mirrorless. So we have the cryogenic data acquisition integrated circuit that's in this made by Rockwell. And that's the only circuit that I could actually get any information on in this device. So when it comes to CPU and GPU, they are listing nothing. I reached out to several contacts that have friends at NASA and things, and nobody will tell us exactly the type of processors and things that are inside this device. I don't know, maybe it's a top secret thing that's going on there, or maybe they just decided nobody cares. But I would have cared, and I tried to find out and couldn't find it. But we also know that to digitize the analog signals from the near IR detectors, JWST is employing a low-noise cryogenic application-specific integrated circuit, or ASIC. That sounds um, a little bit thing. I don't understand what that's supposed to mean. But it sounds cool. Cryogenic application specified integrated circuit. I want one for my home computer. For sure. I want it for my wallpaper. (laughs) Do you have the freezing temperatures of space to make that work? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, my wallpaper has always got space on it in some way. So, I mean, I think I can make it work. It's got to be freezing cold. Oh, I can I can handle that. I'll just put some like ice paper around it in like this weird like snow effect. Maybe that'll... Make it, make it, you know, keep it keep it cooled or whatever. One of the cool things about this microprocessor is the environment that it has to exist in. And when we talk about temperatures and stuff, we'll get into more of that a little later on. But that was definitely a big consideration. But not only the environment, but the power dissipation that happens here. Because you're not going to be able to go up there and, you know, connect an electrical cord to it. You're going to have to run everything off of solar power and some batteries that are inside of it. And all those batteries add weight. And so the more batteries that you have running certain components, then the less amount of components that you can have in other areas. So everything had to be perfectly calculated with the weight and the things that they needed. And it's already gigantic in order to accomplish this task. So you had to have this very low powered 
equipment and electronics and circuitry inside of this. They used lightweight cryogenic mirrors. So Wendy, if you think the mirrors in your camera are impressive, just wait. Because the JWST has a 25 square meter primary mirror, more than seven times larger than the Hubble telescope. Imagine the close-ups you could get on disgusting spiders with that. It would be all the more to make you squirm with. I love it. Let's do it. And it has a primary mirror constructed of 18 plated hexagonal mirror segments. So 18 gold plated hexagonal mirror segments, which are aligned on orbit to form a single optical surface. The challenge for the JWST was to make everything as light as possible without getting distorted as well during its unfolding process. And all of this stuff had to be taken into consideration at once. I wonder if they've learned anything from Hubble. They probably did. When it first launched, it was off just a micro fraction. And because of the way these lenses work, there was nothing crisp. There was nothing clear about those first images that they got off Hubble. They had to send somebody up to fix that really teeny tiny bit of mirror that was left on that should have been taken off during the processing of it. Now you have a telescope that is also run by mirrors. It's also a reflective setup. And you have not just one really large mirror, you have multiple mirrors that need to be in just the right place. I wonder what that thought process was like and how worried they are during these two weeks of setup. Is it going to work? Or are they once again like Hubble going to have to send up a crew to fix it before it's usable? That's interesting to think about. Every little minute detail has to be planned, tested, retested, tested again. And you're dealing with something so massive that a lot of this has to go towards computer simulations, probably smaller scale versions of this device to make sure everything is working properly. Then you have all the space debris and everything else that could cause issues with these mirrors and segments. There is just so much that they had to calculate inside making this device. And that's why it's just a scientific wonderment that this thing even can exist out there, especially at the size it is, and be able to, of course, produce the science and things that it's going to produce for us later down the years, which we'll see. But just the technology inside absolutely blows my mind. For instance, the micro shutters are tiny, very, very tiny, 200 micron wide cells with lids that open and close in response to the application of a magnetic field. The micro shutters for JWST are formed into arrays of 171 by 365 cells, and each cell can be addressed individually, allowing it to be open or closed as required to view open or block when closed a portion of the sky that they need to get these perfect pictures and images that they're wanting to pick up. And of course, the adjustability makes it perform spectroscopy on up to 100 targets simultaneously. That's a whole new level. And that says to me that from the ground, they can change the shape of those mirrors and how things are focused in order to get pictures from not only this far away, but that many targets simultaneously. This is way more complex than Hubble ever was. 
it'd be crazy if the whole, you know, the, the issue they had to do with the first time with Hubble to make the adjustments where they made it where that they could actually do it remotely because it sounds like they can do remote modifications. Maybe they even have it to the point of being able to do it with the mirrors. And that would make it where you could do all sorts of stuff and many and the, having the hundred different targets at the same time. It's just, it's, it's crazy. Uh, so I, I don't know how many targets Hubble's. I thought it was just one, but I mean, yep. if, if it goes from, like from one to a hundred, I mean, that's, that's nuts. But also I am glad to say that they are using the hexagonal mirror segments because the hexagon is the bestagon. Wow. Really, Michael? A, a dad joke in this serious, serious topic here. Unbelievable. It is necessary because it's so complex and so impressive. You have to undercut it a little bit with uh, a dad joke. That's, <laughs> I gotcha. That's how. That's how. Well, like Michael's dad joke, something that wasn't very impressive to me until I started doing some more research <laughs> that on segment. it. Segment. Oh my goodness. That trans- yeah, that you're segue. welcome. Wow, duh. Well was the storage on this device. So you would think with the type of images and information that's going to be coming in and being processed on this telescope that you would have massive storage requirements. Certainly in the terabytes, maybe in the petabytes. I mean, that's where my mind was going. Well, it's a little dated when it comes to the terms of capacity. And a lot of that has to do with, of course, back when they started developing this thing, and what they thought was a lot of data to store then. And then also because of you're dealing with something that has to exist in the absolute harshest conditions imaginable and still be insanely reliable. You don't want to have to send a crew up there in order to go repair something like this. You need something extremely reliable and it can deal with a lot of harsh conditions. So it's only got around 65 gigabytes of storage on it. So it's about the equivalent of a Nintendo Switch, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. I wonder if they're doing it because of like they could do segments of a photo that's in- enormous or are they doing it where the image... Because a single image doesn't have to be 65 gigs, so it, it's probably okay. Probably, but the type of images they're taking, I would think, would just take a tremendous amount of storage, but... They have it set up so that the data downlink occurs in two four-hour contacts per day where each contact transmits 28.6 gigabytes of the recorded science data. So that means it can free up space during its contacts. It's two contacts per day, and the amount of info that we'll be collecting isn't going to be necessary to store massive amounts at a time because of that ability to kind of keep downloading that information and freeing up space. So that's kind of how they're getting around that space issue uh, as far as storage goes. The one thing I couldn't find, like I mentioned, was the CPU and GPU that are used for this. So if anybody in our community finds it or you get a hold of it, let me know because I would just be fascinated. So I did look up what Hubble's telescope CPUs were. And the Hubble telescope, for which this device will be replacing, initially used Rockwell Autonetics, which contained three redundant CPUs and two redundant NASA standard spacecraft computer model one systems developed by Westinghouse and GSFC using diode transistor logic. And a coprocessor for the DF-224 was added during a servicing mission, one in 1993, which consisted of two redundant strings of, get this, Intel-based 8386 processors 
with an 8387 math coprocessor in there. And of course, later, they got a super boost of speed back in 1999, where we upgraded to a 486 processor in this. So these telescopes aren't known for running the latest and greatest processors out there. Of course, the Hubble you know, was being built and being worked on back in 1993. So it was pretty impressive tech back then. But today's standards, that's pretty low. But I would imagine you don't need a thread ripper out there in space in order to process and handle this information. You've probably got a bunch of different modules that control different pieces of this telescope. It makes sense that they would want to put in something that's not the latest and greatest, but more uh, solid, stable, tested, and all that sort of stuff. Especially with like the, I think, I don't know when the last time they updated the processor of the, of the Hubble, but based on what you just said, if they had last time they did it was 1999, that implies they need the heart, whatever they put in there to last a very long time. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited to see if, the, if they release the information about that, because I know there's going to be a lot of people who are very curious what they put in there. You're going to be ARM processors, you know, make you think there'd be ARM in there because of the low power requirements and things. It would make sense to see some ARM processors. I kind of want to, I hope it was, it's a risk five. I hope. That would be cool, That'd be too. awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, in all reality, they don't need anything like a Threadripper in order to do the image processing. While, yes, it is good to have a good chip when you are processing your images, as we've talked about before, especially when it comes to the phone devices, the software that is doing all of that back-end work is just as, if not more important than the chip itself. How is it taking in that data, processing it out for the image that NASA will be sending on to us, the public? I don't think you'll be finding anything super beefy in this. At least my guess would be no. But I would love to see how they are processing that data inside that chip. Wendy, 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 listen, of course you don't need a Threadripper, but you're NASA. Why wouldn't you put one in there just because? Just for the reckoning. Or two to of them. To boldly well, go where no one else has come. Before. Exactly. To be fair, considering how much this cost, the price of a Threadripper would have been nothing. That's right. We could put a Threadripper in there for $10 billion. They could have put at least two or three in there for sure. So when you compare the Hubble versus Webb, both Webb and Hubble are using reflecting telescopes. This means they collect their light from huge curved mirrors rather than lenses. However, Webb's primary mirror here measures 21.3 feet, whereas Hubble's is only 7.9 feet. So when you think about all this and put it together, all of the beautiful images we talked about we got from Hubble, and you compare it to the new tech that's going into Webb, there's just going to be some amazing things that we're going to be able to see here. All of this, in addition to its location, it's going to be orbiting the sun. Webb will make a tight orbit around a point in space known as Lagrange 2 or L2, and this point is located 1.5 million kilometers from Earth. Its distant location will give Webb the ability to see much further into the universe than the Hubble Space Telescope, which we love, ever could have dreamed of. So we're just going to see some amazing things. And just real quick before we kind of close out, I want to talk about the operating temperatures here because you were talking earlier about your Raspberry Pi and wanting to keep it cooler. We talk about this show on the show a lot about being able to keep your components cool and how important that is, but they have an opposite problem in space. When we look at the operating temperatures of the telescope and the instruments, we find that the large sunshade will protect the telescope from heating 
by direct sunlight since it's orbiting around the sun, allowing it to cool down to temperatures below 50 Kelvin. Now, that's what it's allowing it to cool down to. 50 Kelvin, for those who don't know, is negative 223 degrees Celsius or negative 370 degrees Fahrenheit. And it does this by passively sure. radiating its heat into space. The definition of Kelvin temperature scale is that 0K is absolute zero. And so this is temperature below 50 Kelvin, the lowest possible temperature. Water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, zero degrees Celsius, or about 273 degrees Kelvin. So the near-infrared instruments will work at about 39 Kelvin, or negative 234 degrees Celsius, or negative 389 degrees Fahrenheit. And the mid-infrared instrument will work at temperatures of 7 Kelvin, or negative 266 Celsius, or negative 447 degrees Fahrenheit using a helium refrigerator or cryocooler system in there, which this is the technology. When we talk about stuff from space that ends up in the consumer market that I want in my computer, <laughs> I want a helium refrigerator or cryocooler system made for my case so I can keep my CPU really cool. What do you think? Yep. So much stuff comes from the work that NASA does, and uh, and, it, and it's so much impressive things. And I just love the fact that you're like, I want a helium refrigerator in my system. I mean, why not? It'd be amazing. <laughs> well, here's the problem that I see with that. You don't have to deal with condensation in space. But here on Earth, to have something that cold, you would have to deal with either water freezing to it, ice spilled up on your system, how are you going to handle that one? Okay, fine, Wendy. Not a helium refrigerator, but a cryo cooler then. Compromise. Yeah, totally <laughs> compromised there with the cryo cooler. Compromise. It is fascinating to think about these temperatures. I don't even think we can fathom that kind of temperature in our mind of these negatives here of negative 370 degrees Fahrenheit and what you would have to do internally to this device to make sure that you can properly dissipate heat, properly deal with the extreme cold. It's just there's so much going on that they had to calculate here and be able to make sure that this device is going to operate for 10 years that it's supposed to be in service. And we know a lot of these devices end up in stay in service much longer than their initial lifespan. But at least 10 years of data that we'll be receiving from this device is going to have to operate at these extreme conditions and be able to do all of these amazing tasks and it's just absolutely a scientific miracle that this thing exists. And it's going to be so exciting the first time we can talk about some of these images here on Hardware Addicts in the future. Yeah, it's so it's such a complicated thing that I feel like, you know, we're talking about hardware stuff. And sometimes I feel like that the hardware stuff goes a little bit over my head. As I'm not a hardware person, I admit. It goes a little bit over my head sometimes, and I have to ask questions, which is good for the show, and it gets good, you know, it, it lets me learn some stuff. And then when we talk about this thing, and basically every sentence is just like, I have no chance of understanding this, not even a little. It is interesting you say that because I felt the same way. You know, normally I can look at specs of any type of equipment, and it all makes sense, and I'm able to discern what it does. But when you look at these specs, when you look at some of the things that they're dealing with, even temperatures. It's so otherworldly, literally, that <laughs> it's hard to put into uh, it's hard to put into your mind or baseline that against anything that we know how to deal with here. 
uh, from a computer world. And I guess that's why this was so fascinating to cover, just thinking about the size and everything oh, yeah. here. For instance, the Sun Shield, Web's five-layer deployable Sun Shield. Yeah, it's the size of a tennis court. A tennis wow. court. This device is so massive and is, is just going to be traveling a million miles from Earth. And to think about these type of things and these sensors and these devices where you don't have the ability to just send a crew up and go fix it. It's not as close as the space station. It's a million miles from Earth. So things have to work perfectly. And you got $10 billion floating around out there. You don't want a $10 billion space weight <laughs> yeah. out there. Yes. Yeah. That's it's such a it's such an astonishing level of complexity that it is it's so impressive that I, I think I, I can't wait to see to learn more about this thing and I hope they give us more information about it because this I think that's why they didn't tell us about the CPU and some other stuff is because they've already told us so much that we can't really fully encapsulate it in our minds yet and then they kind of roll it out on a phase that way okay now we understand a little bit more give them more time. That's they don't want to overwhelm like. the geeks. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Too much geek exactly. squealing already for what they got. Yeah. But this is really awesome and I can't wait to to look at the the stuff that they're going to get with this thing. This episode of Hardware Addicts is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is a password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager as well as additional authentications such as master passwords and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. Say you want that premium account. It starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage. Two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo. Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage, and Generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. If you're like me, though, you're going to want to show your appreciation to this open source project and sign up for that premium edition, especially where it starts at just $10 per year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. So, Wendy, I tried to make sense of all of the specs we went through from a hardware addict, computer hardware addict perspective, but a lot of this has more to deal with lenses and mirrors and things in your realm. So, tell us about lenses refractive versus reflective. Well, as we were talking about before, both Hubble and Webb use mirrors. So, this is a reflective type of light. It'll come through the front of the telescope. It'll hit that massive mirror in the back, and then it'll bounce forward and hit the sensor. If it's a telescope you're using at home, it would hit another little mirror so you could look at it through the little eyeglass. One of the nice things about this type of lens, this type of gathering light, is that you don't have to worry about the light passing through. In your standard lens, the ones that we use for most cameras, that is refractive. So it comes into the lens and then it has to be focused at some point further down on that sensor. Therefore, the glass has to be really, really clean. It has to be really, really clear. And that gets extremely heavy. 
Could you imagine trying to have a piece of glass big enough to fit in one of these extremely large telescopes? But people utilize telescopes and they connect their cameras to them. And some telescopes have cameras connected to them, but I guess they would operate completely separate from each other. Yeah, they would be operating separate from each other, the camera. And and there are telescopes that you can get on the ground that do the reflective method. And there's telescopes that you can get here for home use that use the reflective method. Most camera lenses we use this day do use the reflective method passing through concave or convex glass. And it's really easy to have distortion on the edge of that. One of the other problems that can come from refractive style lenses, or also in this case, telescopes, is what we call chromatic aberration. As the light is coming through your lens, it's separating a little bit. Think about if you've got a crystal hanging in the window, the light comes through that crystal and it separates it out into all of the different colors that make up white light. It can somewhat do that inside your camera, especially at stuff in the distance. And then you have almost this halo, this rainbow effect that can be around things. That's one of the things that reflective doesn't have to deal with. So where in some ways you can get better quality images from reflective instead of refractive, why aren't we using it on our cameras? Because you would need a giant telescope-sized lens on the end? Not quite, but you have some of the right idea. Part of it has to deal with the body of your camera, the sensors at the back. So it can't be a 100% reflective style lens. They do make them, they're called catadioptric, and they're a mix of mirror and lens. So in this style, it still comes directly through the front. It hits a mirror in the back. It bounces it forward to another mirror. And then from that front mirror, it passes it out the back through a glass lens and onto your sensor. That's a whole lot of light bouncing going on. The biggest problem and why they're not super popular on cameras, because like I said, they do make them. You can buy one. I'm actually eyeing one on eBay right now, but they have a (laughs) fixed aperture. That means you can't adjust how much light is coming into that lens. If it is on your camera, the only way to make that adjustment is through shutter speed. If it's too bright, you're just out of luck. You have no other adjustment that way. And then every single one of them is, of course, manual focus. It's like auto mode, but without doing all the fixes for me that I need. So I'm kind of okay that it's fixed and I don't have to do anything with it. I just have no talent, so I'd mess up every picture. But what are some of the ways you can get around that fixed aperture? What what are some of the techniques that you could use if you're trying to shoot something where that becomes an issue? Really, the only thing that you can do is adjust your shutter speed. So the faster you make it, the less light is hitting that sensor for a particular amount of time. Now, on my camera body, I think I can go up to eight thousandths of a second. And depending on what you're taking a picture of, if that's still too bright and not everything is going to have detail, well, there's nothing you can do about that. That's one of the problems of a fixed aperture. 
These are really meant more for distance, so not close up. The one I have an eye on is actually a 500 millimeter lens. Now I do have a 400 millimeter lens, one I haven't played with too much, but it is quite long. It's very heavy. And one of the advantages of this type of lens where it uses reflective, because the light is traveling so far inside, it's bouncing to so many places, you can have a shorter lens and still have the same focal length. Do you guys remember what focal length is? The length of the focal, of course. Yes, of course. Absolutely. It's the length of the focal. <laughs> it is the distance of what it takes to focus that light. So the more zoomed in you are, say you're using a 75 millimeter lens, it has to be longer in order to focus that light. So your lens in and of itself will be longer. And then on top of that, you have a narrower field of view. A reflective lens or like this one where it's a mix of reflective and refractive can condense the size of that down so it's much lighter, it's easier to carry. You can use these for, say, some night photography, some long-distance photography, but it's not very good for anything that needs to be taken really fast pictures of because the focus is also manual. You wouldn't want to use this for sports. They're moving way too much. There's too much going on, and it'd be nearly impossible for you to get a picture of getting that shot in the basket or whatever you're doing with a lens like this. Now, would this be a situation where you could utilize your camera as a telescope to take pictures of, say, the moon and things like that? Could it be utilized for those purposes? Your telescope usually has far more zoom to it. You could use a 500 millimeter lens to get pictures of the moon that's one of the main reasons why I used mine. I didn't get great pictures, but I was using it to take some pictures of the solar eclipse that we had here a few years ago. That is what I use my 400 millimeter lens for. And it did get somewhat decent shots. The problem I had was I ordered my filter way too late. And so I really didn't have a good quality filter in front of it to get a really nice clean shot. You could use it for that type of photography, some great pictures of the moon. You're not going to get more distant objects from this type of lens. Very interesting. So telescopes are using reflective camera lenses, refractive, but there are camera lenses that use reflective. And Wendy's going to own one, it sounds like here pretty soon. So we might be able to see some pictures on the discourse forums of the reflective lens inside of a camera use case, which will be awesome to see. So we'll have the James Webb telescope pictures to look forward to and Wendy's pictures coming soon. Nice. And that's it. Our 51st episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Thank you for listening to the show that brings you your bi-weekly tech fix. And if you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all of the great content on the Destination Linux network. Head to destinationlinux.network. Check out all the great podcasts and YouTube partners available. There is so much to fill your brains with. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow. I usually say we hope you enjoyed the show, but resistance is futile, so I know you enjoyed the show. And we'll see you next time when we set our phasers to stun and engage in another Outer Limits episode of Hardware Addicts where we go to infinity and beyond. Wow, you make Star Trek and Toy Story in that closing. That's impressive. And Outer man. Limits. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's five puns. In that, 
<laughs> Love it. <laughs>